there. All right. Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the Sunday evening service here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be starting in verse 11 this evening. It says, In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 1, we have, been exam- we have been examining the blessings that every believer has in Christ. First, we learned in verses 4 to 6 of the blessings of election and adoption, that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that we were predestined to adoption as sons. These blessings took place in the past and are the work of the Father. Second, we learned in verse 7 of the blessings of redemption and forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. These blessings are presently being worked out, and they will be completed in eternity, and they are, <clears throat> they are the work of the Son. And now this evening we will take a look at the third and final blessing, a future blessing. A blessing yet to be completed, but something that is certain to be obtained by those who are in Christ. And it is a blessing that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that this third blessing is an inheritance that is guaranteed by the seal of the Holy Spirit. So with this in mind, let's jump right in and take a look at verses 11 and 12. Uh, In verses 11 and 12, uh, we'll be spending most of our time this evening. Uh, In verse 11 we read, In him... We also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Pronouns seem to be all the rage in our society today. Well, this evening, pronouns will be a very important part in helping us to parse this text and understand what Paul is saying. Here in verses 11 to 12, we see Paul refer to himself and others with the pronoun we. Later on in verse 13, Paul changes to use the pronoun you and your. And finally in verse 14, Paul changes again and uses the pronoun our. As we study the scriptures, it is important to notice these kinds of details as they give insight into answering the question, what is the author trying to say? And more specifically, what is the Holy Spirit saying through Paul? Asking this question is critical in ensuring the right interpretation of a text because it forces us to look at the text 
for the answers to the questions about the text rather than to interject our own thoughts, feelings, and inclinations on the text. And so these pronouns are one key that helps us unlock a part of our text this evening. In using the pronoun we in verses 11 to 12, Paul is referring to the first believers, the first members of the body of Christ, the first members of his church, which happened to be Jewish. The pronoun you in verse 13 refers to those whom this epistle was written to, uh, which consisted mainly of Gentile believers. And finally, the pronoun are in verse 14 refers to both groups, Jews and Gentiles. And this is an important theme in this epistle that Paul will expound upon later. Namely, the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation, which includes the horizontal reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, both united in what constitutes the church through the one man, Jesus Christ. So these are Jewish believers. But how do we know this? The assertion that we refers to the early church Jews is supported by the phrase, we who first have hoped in Christ in verse 12. Notice the pronouns have, uh, the pronouns have not changed. The we in verse 12 is referring to the same group of people as the we in verse 11. And this notion of the gospel being for the Jews first is consistent with Scripture at large. Consider the following. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The proclamation of the gospel started in Jerusalem, and thus the first converts were Jewish. This is further supported by Scripture that reminds us that the gospel was for the Jew first and then the Greek or the Gentile. Speaking of the gospel in Romans 1 verse 16, Paul says the following, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And finally, this is supported by the fact that when Peter addresses the Jewish leaders in his sermon in Acts 3, he tells them that Christ was sent for the Jews first to bless them and turn them from their wicked ways. Acts chapter 3, verse 26 reads as follows, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So it is no surprise here that Paul would be speaking of the Jewish believers first in relation to God's sovereign call to grant saving faith. And so, in referring to these Jewish believers, first, Paul speaks of this third blessing when he says, in him we also have been made an inheritance. It is interesting to note that the LSB is the only modern translation that renders this verse with the words, have been made. The ESV renders it, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The NASB says, in him we also have obtained an inheritance. And the New King James and King James are not much different. John Stott says the following regarding the Greek word kleru, which is at the heart of these differences in translation. Um, And it clarifies why there might be some variation here. He says, the verb kleru can mean to give or to receive a kleros, an inheritance. The question is, to what inheritance Paul is referring? It could be ours, a gift which we received. Alternatively, it could be God's because he has taken us to be his own. So, uh, 
<clears throat> what do we do with this? Which is the correct interpretation? I like the way John MacArthur approaches this. Uh, here's what he has to say. We have an inheritance that we will receive. But to begin with, we are an inheritance. And the language allows that. In fact, I think that's the way the Legacy Standard Bible accurately translates it. So we are his inheritance. But on the other hand, we don't want to discount the fact that we have also obtained an inheritance. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to take a moment and consider the weight of what you have just heard. You, believer, have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. You, believer, have also been made an inheritance for God in Christ. So two questions arise. First, what does it mean that we are God's inheritance? And then second, what exactly is the inheritance that we receive? Well, let's consider those in order. What does it mean that we are God's inheritance? As believers, as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, we are Christ's inheritance. How? Well, he has bought us by his blood, sacrificed on the cross for our sins. And as we read in Isaiah 53, verse 10, Christ will see his offspring, or as translated in the LSB, Christ will see his seed, speaking of believers, speaking of the church. And we also, <clears throat> we also see this theme in the New Testament, where the Father has given us to Christ as his own. Look at John 17, as Christ is praying to the Father before he goes to the cross, he says in verses 9 and 10, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And so in this way, we are God's inheritance, more specifically Christ's inheritance. But we also have an inheritance in Christ. There are a number of aspects of this that we could discuss this evening, um, though let's consider what Romans 4 has to say about our inheritance. Starting in verse 13, we read, For the promise to Abraham, or to his seed, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty, and the promise has been abolished. <clears throat> Romans 4 speaks of those who are the seed of Abraham, being heirs of the world. We learn in verse 13 that those who are Abraham's seed are those who have saving faith, both Jew and Gentile. And this is a very important point. Both Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 reads, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul later in Romans speaks of there being a national hardening on the nation of Israel. And in Romans 11, we learn that God's plan for the nation of Israel is that this hardening will be lifted, and at that point, all in that generation will be saved. And this will happen by all in that generation obtaining a saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this is further affirmed by what Paul says here in Romans chapter 4, 
verse 16, when he explains why our salvation and thus our inheritance is by faith. He says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so the reason salvation is by faith, and thus according to grace, is so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, i.e. all those who believe in Jesus Christ. So salvation does not come by being Jewish, it comes by faith. This also tells us that our our inheritance is by faith. And let us not overlook uh, verse 13. The promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world. If you are truly in Christ, as Paul speaks of so frequently in Ephesians, and the world is Christ's, then the world is yours. God owns it all. And so by proxy, through adoption as his sons, as fellow heirs of Jesus Christ, the world is yours as well. This should have serious implications on how we think about what is happening around us and how we live out our lives in this world. The world is already yours in Christ. Stop striving for it. You have it. Stop enslaving yourself to the things of this world and the pursuit of riches, power, fame, and glory apart from Christ because you already possess those things in Christ and in eternity. Humbly, live like you own it, because you do. And if you already own it, then you won't be pursuing it, because it's already yours. Instead, live in such a way that you are pursuing the things of God, and pursuing the hearts of the lost for God. Here's another thing to consider. The fact that we are heirs of the world, that we have an inheritance in Christ, means that we should be a people characterized by hope. In the face of all that is taking place before us, all the wickedness, all the corruption, and all the defilement of the order established by God in creation, in the face of the potential suffering and turmoil that we might be quickly entering, in the face of persecution, pain, hardship, uncertainty, and even imprisonment and death, we must be a people of hope because that is what we have been born again into. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I'm preaching to myself here as much as to all of you, because it's easy to get focused on the horizontal and lose sight of the vertical. It's easy to see what is happening right before your eyes, and lose sight of Jesus Christ and your inheritance in eternity. So I encourage you, keep your eyes on Christ and walk through this wasteland with hope. Finally, let's consider what Colossians 1 teaches us about how we should live because of our inheritance in Christ. Verse 12 says the following, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the implication of our inheritance is not just that we should be hopeful, but thankful. 
Brothers and sisters, is your life characterized with thankfulness to the Father for what he has done to save you and what, he, and what that means for you in eternity? Again, let's take our eyes off of what is happening around us and instead remain focused on eternity and on Jesus Christ. Now, this verse in Colossians is speaking of what the Father has done for us. And if we turn back to our passage this evening in Ephesians, Paul elaborates on that in verse 11 when he says, "...having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." Here we see Paul explain how one has been made an inheritance when he says, "...having been predestined." Further, from verse 5 we learn that predestination is the means through which we are made holy and blameless. And that is done in love toward us. Therefore, being made an inheritance, having an inheritance in Christ, is tied directly to God's choosing us before the foundation of the world for salvation in Christ. So what does it mean that God has predestined us? Romans 8 gives us some insight here. Starting in verse 29, we read, "...because of those whom he foreknew..." He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Simply put, God has loved us. And God has determined beforehand for those whom he loves that we will be conformed into the image of Christ that we will be called unto salvation in Christ, that we will be justified in Christ, and that we will be glorified in Christ. This is what it means that we have been predestined. The next words of Paul in verse 11, according to, are very important because they provide the grounds for our predestination and the inheritance which we are speaking of. Paul tells us that these things are in accordance with the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Just like our salvation, our redemption through his blood, just like the forgiveness of our transgressions accords with the unfathomable riches of his grace, so too the certainty of this promised inheritance accords with a similar unbreakable assurance. Namely, that this is all God's plan. This is all a part of what God intends to do. And when God intends to do something, nothing can stop him. This is what we call his sovereignty. Consider the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in his time. This is what he says about the one true and sovereign God. Daniel 4, 34-35 reads, But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Consider this God whom you serve. 
Consider this God who has saved you according to his eternal sovereign plan. Consider this God who has loved you from eternity past. Consider this God who has chosen you to be his child. Consider this God for whom you have been made an inheritance and from whom you are promised an inheritance and worship him. All right, let's turn our attention to uh, verse 12, which says, To the end that we who first have hoped in Christ will be to the praise of his glory. Here we see what this is all about. Here Paul explains the chief end of our salvation. Paul says that all of this is done to the end that we who first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And Paul reemphasizes this at the end of verse 14 as well, when he says again, to the praise of his glory. Christ did not die. Christ was not buried. Christ was not raised from the dead, ultimately, for your salvation. No, the chief end of God in our salvation, his final and ultimate purpose is his glory. And we are the mere benefactors of his mercy and grace. And in case you doubt this, consider the conversation that Jesus has with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. Turn to John 12, and let's take a look at verses 27 to 28. John 12 reads as follows. In verse 27, Now my soul has become dismayed, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. For what purpose has Christ come to this hour? For what purpose has Christ come to die on the cross to save sinners? Wait, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. It's not about us. The chief end of the cross is not our salvation, but the glory of God. And this is a good thing. Because it is right, it is righteous that God be glorified and all other things pale in goodness compared to this one thing. Okay, now let's briefly consider what Paul tells us in verse 13. Notice here how Paul turns our attention from the Jewish believers to the Gentile believers. He's using a different pronoun, uh, you instead of we. In verse 13, we read, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here he speaks of the salvation of the Gentiles through their excuse me, hearing of the word of truth as found in the gospel, just like the Jewish believers whom Paul says in verse 12, first hoped in Christ. And here's the point again. 
both Jew and Gentile, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and no other way. Notice also the order, hearing and then believing. After listening to the word of truth, having also believed. This is the God-ordained means by which people become saved. The gospel must be preached. There is a very popular quote whom some attribute to St. Francis of Assisi, but in actuality no one knows exactly who said it. Either way, it goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, let me tell you, it's always necessary to use words. I really actually dislike this quote. I dislike it because it feeds on our fear of sharing the gospel. And I dislike it because it's so completely contrary to Scripture. Don't buy the lie that you can live out your life without telling people the gospel with words spoken from your mouth and think that they're going to come to know Jesus Christ through that. That's not how God ordained for it to happen. Consider Romans 10.14, which says the following, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, Further in verse 17 we read, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the gospel can only work if it is spoken out loud. Yes, live in a manner consistent with the gospel, but don't stop there. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Start with the bad news that we are sinners guilty before a holy God and destined for condemnation because of our sin against the Lord. And then tell them the good news that God sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life fulfilling the perfect standard required of the Father, the standard that we must live up to in order to enjoy the presence of the Lord forever, but have failed miserably in doing. And then tell them that Christ, in agreement with the Father, chose to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay because of our sin. He did this by taking our place and dying on the cross to atone for our sin. And finally, tell them that Christ offers to impart to us his perfect righteousness. And he also offers to take from us the guilt of our sin if we would only accept this gift which we don't deserve. If we would believe this and turn from that sin which he has died for, we can have an everlasting joy, an everlasting inheritance. We can enjoy forever every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Tell people this because someone told it to you. Now, turn your attention to the end of verse 13. And notice what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does this mean, to be sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise? There's a lot that we could say here, but I think we will gain the most benefit when we see that Paul actually answers this question in verse 14 when he says that the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. What Paul is saying here is that when you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit completely and finally. And in having the Holy Spirit, 
It is the same as when a king puts a wax seal on a letter, which proves without doubt that that letter is from the king and comes with his authority. So Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit functions as proof that we are in Christ. And thus with the authority of the Father, we know that we are saved, that we are a child of the King, and thus heirs of the inheritance that those who are His children receive. Paul continues in verse 14 and says, "...unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory." This is all done unto the redemption of God's own possession. You only need a promise. You only need a pledge or guarantee of something that has not been fully realized yet. We have our inheritance like the son of a king has an inheritance. A prince does not receive their inheritance in full, though, until they become the king. Much like we've recently seen in the royal family, when Queen Elizabeth was alive, Charles had the promise of his inheritance, and yet he did not have possession of it. But once Queen Elizabeth passed, Charles became king, and that promise was fulfilled. The inheritance is now in his possession fully. And this is true for the children of God as well, except that our guarantee is completely ironclad. There are ways that Charles could have not obtained in his inheritance. For example, what if he died before Elizabeth passed away, which was looking potentially possible? He would have never obtained it. For us, not even death stands in the way of our inheritance. In fact, death is the means by which we obtain our inheritance. And the Holy Spirit, which dwells in our hearts, is the guarantee of it. So we, the church, consisting of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, have been brought together, have been united by faith in this one man, Jesus Christ. And this was not something that we have done ourselves. On the contrary, we were predestined by the Father, according to the purpose of His will, to be in Christ and to be holy and blameless, to be adopted as sons, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be and to have an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, and all of this to the praise of His glory. Amen? Uh, Now I invite Paul to come back up and close us with a final song after I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this inheritance, Lord, that we have been made, and Lord, that we receive in Christ. Father, may we live our lives in such a way that we remember that we are heirs of the world, Lord, and so that we would pursue the things of God and not waste our times, not waste our time, Lord, pursuing the things of this world that that will burn away and be fleeting, Father. We pray most of all that in all of our lives, in every aspect of what we do, that you would be glorified, Lord, for that is the ultimate purpose of all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.